Thanks for joining us this morning at Genesis Community Church. Uh, what we'll just call Palm Sunday in August. Our reading has us on the triumphal entry. Uh, John chapter 12 in this instance, but of course shows up in the other Gospels as well. And what we see, of course, time and time again as we enter into Holy Week, very often churches might do something for Holy Week that starts on Palm Sunday and they might do a thing or two. They have a Good Friday service maybe. Some churches might have like a Maundy Thursday. Some churches set stuff up every day of the week to accomplish some aspect. But for us, we will go through Palm Sunday today and then we will spend the next four months in Holy Week or something like that because really what John gives us are not a lot of events pertaining to what goes on during Holy Week, but specifically Jesus' interaction with his disciples. So Jesus' instruction with his disciples starts in chapter 13 and continues on through the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and then uh, the parts we might be more familiar with, uh, death, burial, resurrection, that's all coming, but that's not coming in our schedule probably even until next year. So we're going to spend the fall, and by fall kind of September to November-ish, working through 13 through 17, finishing up chapter 12 through Labor Day weekend. That's where we'll be. But I was working on this sermon outline in a waiting room, which is even as I was writing that, I was like, this feels like the classic pastor introduction. Like I was at a waiting room and uh, like it just seems to be what people talk about or what they say. Uh, I don't, and as I was reading it, I don't even remember what waiting room I was in anymore. I just know I was in one. And of course, people get greeted and they go, how are you? How are you doing? And there's the classic, you guys know you know how I talk about these specific words. Like, they're like cultural buzzwords. It's almost like virtue signaling uh, to say you're tired. And so oh, I'm already tired. It's in the morning, and I'm already tired. I'm tired. And it's like, anytime I hear that, and I know that we say it, but I'm like, are we just trying to feel good about ourselves? Like, we just communicate to people how tired we are? Is that like saying that we're really important? Is that like, is that like we're saying that we have a lot that we're doing? We're really busy. So many things are going on. Like, I just don't, I don't know the biblical virtue in exhaustion. I don't know it. I don't see it. Uh, the times that we see it more, more specifically in the Gospels pertain to Jesus right before and as he's dying. And so I don't know if we can necessarily make the connection between us just being tired and us just being, you know, the Messiah, because we're not that, but we love this idea of communicating that we're tired or that we're worried. Like there has to be something that we're pacing about or thinking about or anxious about. And I just, I think our culture just tries to wind us up to get us to be exhausted over things. We don't often need much help. We can worry about all kinds of stuff just left to our own. But I do think it is true for, for many in the room, if not all in the room, doesn't really matter the age or the kids might think about it a little less, is that life does come at us quickly. There are a lot of plates that many people are spinning it feels like we have to be aware of everything, interested in everything, have a position on everything, and we know we don't. So even the fact that we know we don't exhaust us, the thought that we have to have all those positions exhaust us, the fact that we know we don't have all those positions exhaust us, we don't want to admit that we don't really know how we feel on certain things, or we don't want to admit that the way we feel isn't really that firm. Like, like well, I, I kind of feel that way. Like, it just, it, like, we all have that, but we don't want to say it because it seems wrong. 
And so we just try to hold all those things together about life. And I do feel as if it exhausts us. It, it burdens us with anxiety. And if anxiety isn't your word, perhaps it's just worry. You just worry about stuff. You think about what's going to happen. Like that's a good thing. Well, I'm just worried about my kids. Or I'm worried about my grandkids. Or I'm worried about my great-grandkids. I'm worried about this, worried about that. Even though the Bible clearly says, be anxious for nothing, but pray. So like, it even kind of says that, that holding that and in being burdened in that way, it really should just direct it toward the Lord. We still feel almost virtuous to have all these things in our minds. Not a lot of people have a lot of peace. Even though we might call Jesus the Prince of Peace. That's what we call him around Christmas time. Uh, the Prince of Peace. But... What we get to see in today's passage is, is Jesus signaling himself both in fulfillment of prophecy, but in the heading to his death, he's signaling himself for the people as the peace bringer. And we'll see that through the riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, remember, he has raised Lazarus. That was pretty cool. So Lazarus is around. He was at a meal with Lazarus, with raised Lazarus and his families, right at the beginning of chapter 12. We saw that. People are now ready to kill him. They know, hey, this guy's no good. Let's kill him and Lazarus. Jesus is about to get to the spot where he declares that his time has come. But first thing he does, he was in Bethany, and he's headed now into Jerusalem, making the two-mile journey, heading into the town. And as you're getting toward the Passover, it didn't matter that it was this year or the next year or the previous year or the one before that. There is, I'll call it, messianic expectation. Around the Jewish festivals, there would be a heightened anticipation that something was going to happen. It's, it's like one of the reasons that you're just happier around Christmas time. You know, it's like, I just love the seat, right? Like, you just, it changes how you feel. Well, with these national holidays for the nation, there would be these expectations of God's deliverance, of God's deliverer, of God's promises being fulfilled. And so there was this heightened expectation about a Messiah. Maybe the Messiah will come. And what we'll see, just going to take this in two ways. We're going to look at the story. We're going to look at the triumphal entry. And we're going to see that principle of Jesus coming in peace, working out for us. Now, I had heard a sermon, or I kind of scanned over a sermon, that tried to combine the chapter 12, the anointing of Jesus for burial, with the triumphal entry. That was a lot. Just doing the triumphal entry might not feel like a lot, but as it pertains to how we recognize Jesus and how he came now, I'll just say this at the beginning. I will say to all of us, it is much better for us to receive Jesus as the peace bringer than to see Jesus as the conquering king having not received him, right? He has both, he is both, but he comes as one and he comes later as another. <clears throat> and we get to see how he comes now and the offer that he gives to us now. And it is a much better offer than the one who is coming to destroy sin, Satan, and death. So the first thing we see is Jesus riding into Jerusalem 
on a colt, on a donkey, praised by the crowds. Verses 12 and 13. The next day, Jesus, the large crowd that had come from the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees, you know the landscaper was annoyed, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. We're going to zoom in more on chapter, or on verse 13. Because a few things are going on here. First, of course, they're praising Jesus. This comes from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I'll read it to you. Save us, we pray. That's the idea of Hosanna. Save us. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26 of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. A few things. The palm branches, a way to demonstrate praise and worship. They were used at certain festivals. I believe the Feast of Tabernacles they were used. But then they can just kind of be used as a way to recognize and identify some aspect or expression of praise. Maybe you grew up in churches that had banners. You know what I'm talking about? People might walk up and down the aisle with banners, take them off the wall. Just if you have, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. We're trying to find some kind of way to demonstrate affection, de- demonstrate something, declare something, and those palm branches could declare as people go break them off, participate in this kind of expression of worship. They call out this phrase, Hosanna, which means to save us, but it's also kind of just a sign of exaltation. Save us, but they're not really crying out, just save us, save us. It's it's this way to say, praise you. We praise you. And so they're praising him with palm branches, and they're praising him with their words. And then there's this extra line that seems to be interesting that shows that, that kind of messianic expectation. Because look at the end of verse 13. Even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118 right there. Even the king of Israel. It's it's like this added expression of praise with the expectation. And John is riding that line, showing us that there is this anticipation of Jesus being this coming king. Even the king of Israel. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is this king of Israel. Now imagine Jerusalem's starting to grow in its population during this week. People are traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate in the feast. In the same way, or in a, I don't want to say same, in a similar way, there are times in our year as a church where more people start to show up. You know probably two of them, Christmas and Easter. More people will hover around church life. Maybe you have family in town, get it, right? Family come in town for a celebration and they participate in whatever you're doing. So this is where like half of this room on like Christmas Eve is belong to Weichbrotz. Like this whole half, he brings, I don't know how many people, but there are about 45 people from the Weichbrot crew that sit over here. If you kind of have your seat and you get offended on Christmas Eve, get mad at John because his whole crew kind of took it. Everybody starts to do it. And then sometimes you go, oh, it's our year to be at so-and-so's house. So we're going to be at their Christmas Eve. And you start to see those kinds of things. So it gets bigger. More people show up because we're recognizing something or we're celebrating something. Easter is kind of the same. At least even culturally, people go, I think it's time to, maybe you haven't been to church in a while, we should go. There is a third one, which may not come to your mind because it's religious but not religious, but it's Mother's Day. 
A lot of churches do child dedications on Mother's Day, so more families start to show up, or you get your rose or your flower or, you know, whatever it might be. But, but that's another one. There are kind of larger Sundays for churches that kind of revolve around what's going on with the calendar. Now, we don't have, we have a secular calendar. We don't really have that religious calendar. But Jerusalem starts to fill up. More and more people start to show up. And they all, I mean, they, they have varying levels of religious identity or religious commitment. We, don't, we can't say everybody in the crowd was a believer in Jesus, certainly. Some people were just caught up in the fact that there was a crowd because we know this, crowds invite crowds. And so, what's going on over there? I don't know what it is, but I have to go see. I have to go look. And so it's the same kind of, Jesus coming in and you see people just running somewhere. What do you start to do? Go, I guess we're going that way. I don't know what else is happening, but let's go see. So they're all there. They're all praising Jerusalem is increasing in size and people are declaring these things about Jesus as he comes in. Now, verse 14, it says Jesus found a young donkey. Actually, sent his disciples to find two, but John's just giving us the bare bones details here. Jesus got the young donkey. He sat on it and he rides it in. Now, you see that in verse 14. And then John is going to highlight something that's going on. He says, this is to fulfill what is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, I'd, maybe you've seen Shrek. Donkeys aren't the most intimidating of creatures. At least in Shrek, they're not. But in general... If I came over to your house and you said, hey, look, I raise donkeys, I, I personally would not be like, wow, that's impressive. Are you going to take them down to the horse track and race a donkey? What are you going to do? We don't think of donkeys as these spectacular images of like something that a king would ride on. But we need to recognize that the donkey, the colt, the king would ride in at a time of bringing peace. There's the war horse, and then there's peace. And there would be a different vehicle or transport to communicate those images. So Jesus riding in on a donkey wasn't just because there weren't horses around. It wasn't because there wasn't some better image or better illustration. Well, find what you can. Because, in fact, it fulfills prophecies from Zechariah 9.9 about the difference in an earthly kingdom and the difference of this king of Jerusalem. Now, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly instead of fear not. People call it a composite prophecy where John's combining maybe something from Isaiah, which would say fear not, Isaiah 40 verse 9, with what Zechariah says in Rejoice greatly. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. So Zechariah, that's Old Testament, prophesying about how the king's going to come. Jesus tells his disciples to get a donkey, get a colt, and the colt's mother, and ride in, and he rides in on that to fulfill what Zechariah was saying. Now, what I love about this is, think about Jesus for a second. 
It's amazing to think that someone walked on this earth who never made a mistake. Everything had a purpose. Everything had intention. You know, sometimes we stumble into something, right? Like, like we're more like the high priest that said, hey, it's better that one man dies for the nation than for us to lose our spot in the nation. And we didn't realize in that moment we were being more prophetic than we thought. We thought we were disparaging Jesus, but really we were saying what Jesus was going to do. <clears throat> That's what we're able to do is to go, oh, hey, did that... Did what I do, is that actually, did that, does the scripture talk about that? I had no idea. That's not so with Jesus. Everything Jesus did was on purpose. He said as much. I do nothing. Nothing means nothing. I do nothing unless I see the Father doing it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when Jesus says, go and get the cult, and he rides in, and then John says, just as it is written, Jesus was being unequivocal in his communication about who he was for the nation. The king riding in humbly to bring peace. But guess who got it? Nobody. Nobody. The crowds are there, they're praising, they're saying phrases from Psalm 118, which would be popular phrases to use. They're using palm branches, which would be popular ways to demonstrate praise or show some kind of affection. And no one understood Zechariah's prophecy. John is writing after the fact, after it happened. John has the benefit of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And John is writing, and we see this, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, or probably at second or third. But when Jesus was glorified, and that idea of speaking of his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, when, when Jesus had done what he had come to do, what he came to do, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The difference between the disciples in that moment and John at the time of the writing of the Gospel of John was the sending of the Spirit. And this is, we've talked about this before as we've gone through the Gospel of John, or anytime we're reading about historical events about the life of Jesus, is we have to, we have to remember, and this is weird, the word's called pneumatology, which is like the, the part of theology that deals with the Holy Spirit. So we have the Old Testament written, Documents written. We have the New Testament documents written. In between their writings, Jesus came and the Spirit came. Okay? So one testament might predict what will happen, but then the New Testament assumes what has happened. And that's hard for us to remember is that this is why you, you, you don't go to the New Testament and you don't see this, this, like, a biblical author giving some defense of the Trinity because it was assumed. Son has come. The Spirit has come. God is three. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so they write about it as, as, as an assumed reality. But it happened in between the Old and the New Testament. That's, that can be kind of weird as we think about it. So John is writing about events that happened before the Spirit. But every now and then he's going to give you a comment on why they didn't get it in the moment. And so he's like, we didn't get it at that time, 
But then when it all happened later and, you know, like Jesus was glorified, after his glorification, what comes? The Spirit comes. Acts chapter 2. Then we started to connect the dots and we saw things. That's a gift for us today. I mean, what's so cool is that, that you and I get to read the Gospel of John and we get to see John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tell us things about Jesus and his life. And then he goes, we didn't even get it. In that moment, we didn't understand what was going on. And we get the benefit of him learning about it as he then instructs us on why he didn't get it. <laughs> you know, you can just imagine the disciples going, why does this guy want a cult? I mean, we'll go get it. The, the master needs the cult. We'll go get it. But why does the guy need a cult? They're not. We, we, we're like, these are fishermen. They're not sitting around studying Zechariah all the time. And the ones who should be able to connect the dots, the religious leaders, are so blinded in their pride that they will not connect the dots. So the ones who should be helping the nation see what they should see are not. And the ones who wouldn't know aren't making, connecting the dots, but they do it when the Spirit comes. The Spirit goes, oh, hey, no, look at that. And you go, oh, there it is. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks towards the end of chapter 12 where John lays out his kind of theology of unbelief, as D.A. Carson calls it, where he explains why they did not believe. And you might hear me say this phrase. Uh, <clears throat> you could say it either way, honestly, is the way John, John kind of sets it up. They did not believe because they could not believe, or they could not believe because they did not believe. Both of those things are presented in John. <laughs> Their hearts were hardened, and thus they were hardened. You'll see that kind of language where they didn't believe it, so they didn't believe it. So they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it, so they didn't believe it. Both of that happened. So you'll see this whole statement of unbelief because you do, I mean, it would, it would make sense to you and I going, how many times do you have to see Jesus raise somebody or heal somebody or teach something? How many times do you have to see that before you get it? I mean, you and I haven't even seen it. And by faith, we're going, yeah, he did it. Lazarus is up, man. You know, he's, he's my bro, I guess. I could say it like that. I'll see him in heaven. It'll be cool. What was it like to die twice, Lazarus? Like, we'll get to have some kind of weird conversation with him about that. <clears throat> we take these things by faith. The disciples did not understand. And I always, when I see that, want to do that small note of the comfort that we get to realize God is continuing to teach us. By his Spirit, with his word, he is continuing to teach us. This is why we never get tired of reading the scriptures. Like we don't go, hey, I totally get it. There might be books you know better than others. There might be ideas or topics in theology that you are more comfortable with than others. Maybe you've taught through a book before. Maybe you've done Bible study fellowship or you've led through a community group in some topic or book or idea. Maybe you've taught through something and you have a little more confidence in that. You know, the ice is still not so thick that you wouldn't fall through, but you can at least kind of put you know, one, one foot on land and one foot on it and you feel a little more comfortable. God's always teaching us. You can read the book of Exodus 95 times in the next nine days, which would be a lot, and still not, not have mined the depths of Exodus. 
The Spirit doesn't say, move along, Hans, you've had enough. There's nothing else you could learn here. And so the, the humility, I think it takes for even a, an apostle to say, we didn't get it, <clears throat> but later we did. And the confidence that gives me to go, with the Spirit and the Word, God is continuing to work. He's continuing to teach. He's continuing to instruct. And I was thinking about that even as I was, I was pouring communion juice. You know, just kind of just doing my thing all the way around. I'm, I'm going, the way I view communion even now is different than I did 10 years ago. The way that I understand how church life is and what goes on. Like I have different convictions about that now. Why? Because God is a gracious teacher. He's still instructing. He's still growing. He's still training. And I'm like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So we have this statement. His disciples did not understand what was going on. And the crowd who had been with him when he raised Lazarus, they're the ones testifying. And then others went out because they wanted to see the guy who rose, uh, raised Lazarus from the dead at 17 and 18. Then you have the irony, of course. John loves these ironies. The Pharisees look around and they, they say, you see you're gaining nothing. They're going, Our plan isn't working. Even the world. Look, the world has gone after him. Now we know in the Gospel of John, world doesn't always mean world. So, so... Meaning, John might talk about world as those powers that are in opposition to the Lord. And I think this is a little bit of a hint from John that not everybody who's in the crowd is a part of the crowd. Not everybody who's in the crowd is a follower, a believer in Jesus. But the Pharisees see it and they are concerned that they're losing their grip. They're losing their control. Their plans aren't working and so they have to figure out what to do now they've already decided it's time to kill Jesus but as Jesus as we head into this last week as his popularity is growing as his as his well you could say his influence people wanting to see him growing there in Jerusalem they feel as if they are out of control the world has gone after him. But they don't even realize what's going to happen. Because one thing that we get to see next week is, is in John, what triggers, in a sense, Jesus declaring that his time had come was that also Greeks were looking for him. So you have Hebrew crowds who are looking for Jesus. And you have Greek crowds, Jews and Gentiles looking for Jesus. And we've seen hints throughout the Gospel of John, haven't we? That, that he has sheep who are not of this pen. He has people from other pastures. He's going to gather more to himself. And when those Greeks begin looking for him that week of Passover, that's when he says, my hour, my time has come. where more and more will be brought in. So even as the religious leaders are concerned that the world has gone after them, they're looking at it as only their corner of the world. And what John's about to show us is, no, no, no. You're going to see the world go after him. 
Men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, and language, that's his destination. That's his goal. But let's go back to Jesus riding in. Let's go back to Jesus riding in for a moment. Again, if you've seen any, any movie where they have battle scenes, just pick one. Let's assume they have horses too. Like don't, don't pick Band of Brothers. Pick something before, you know, more technological military excursions. And what might you have, right? You have people on one hill over here. You have the others on another hill over here. And what might happen before? The generals come out on their horses. And it's all, you even see in the movies, the conversation like, are you sure you want to do this? <clears throat> are you ready to, like, they come and they have their conversation. And then they go back and it's like, I guess we're doing it. In that moment, no one is riding in on a donkey. It doesn't communicate anything about status. It doesn't communicate anything about power. It doesn't put fear in anybody. But again, Jesus coming in, even as Zechariah said, humble, humbly on a donkey, a sign of peace. That's what we get to see in Jesus. I would say it like this as we look at John and we see where John is heading and we know that John is going to give us a lot of conversation between Jesus and his disciples. The way he instructs them, the way he cares for them, the way he teaches them, he washes their feet. He calls Judas out. We get more, t- more words from Jesus in the Gospel of John specifically pertaining to how he prays than we get anywhere else in the Gospels. We get to hear Jesus pray. We get to read how he talks to his father right before he's arrested. We get to hear how he prays for his disciples. We get to hear how he prays for us. We get all that instruction. Because Jesus came into this world the first time as the one to die so that we might be made right with God. That's the passage that we read in Ephesians recently. He came and preached peace to those who were near. He came and preached peace to those who were far. The Apostle Paul would say it like this, For he himself is our peace. That Jesus is bringing right relationships between us and the Father. He is the mediator of those right relationships. And he is communicating, even as he rides in before his death, he is communicating that he is the king of Israel who brings peace. It is a different expectation than the conqueror. That would be the political expectation of a a Jewish man at that time. Finally, someone to get us out from underneath Roman oppression. Finally, somebody who is going to lead us To have our own nation without these pagans in here, without these influences in here that we don't need. Finally, somebody in Jesus is coming at them totally differently than the expectation that they might have. It also helps us in those moments to understand why didn't the disciples get it? The disciples weren't looking for it. Their expectation was the Messiah comes and right then and there, everything gets fixed. So to have this for us 2,000 year gap where that all hasn't happened yet 
It can seem a little odd. But it hasn't happened so that more of us could be at peace with God. That's why it hasn't happened yet. So that more of us can experience the grace of the Lord Jesus. Find life in the Lord Jesus. Find hope in the Lord Jesus. Be at peace with the Lord Jesus. Through the Lord Jesus. I would say it like this to us in the room today. That we would worship Jesus as the true Prince of Peace. That we would worship Jesus as the true Prince of Peace, as the true Prince of Peace before he is the conquering king. The one that we read about in Philippians, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. Every tongue will will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That's future. Every knee will, every tongue will. It's just a matter of the decision that is made before then. Everybody declares it. But do we declare it because we see it and recognize it in this life? Or we declare it because there are now no other options. He has always been true. The crowd is actually giving us that bit of demonstration of an idea of worship or of praise. We saw it just recently in chapter 12 with the anointing of Jesus' feet. Mary giving something costly. Mary responding, not concerned about the impression others might have of her and we see it with the crowds who saw Lazarus come out of the tomb and they are in that word in John bearing witness testifying they're speaking of Jesus and the crowds come out because they'd heard that he'd spoken of Jesus you can see what we're just talking about Jesus does now some will be repelled They don't want to have anything to do with it. You see that response in the religious leadership in verse 19. And some are attracted, but the people who saw Jesus, the people who saw Jesus move in power, what are they doing? They're talking about it. They're talking about it. We always have this way, especially, I don't even really think it matters about the age. Age of, you know, it's like, well, we always feel like we're not ready to talk to people about Jesus. We just don't don't have enough knowledge about him. We don't have enough confidence in what we might say. We're not sure if the people who we're talking to even have maybe more knowledge about Jesus than we do. And how silly would we feel if if we said something to them and we didn't have a good answer. But when when you see Jesus, we said this about... Mary, when you see Jesus and you recognize him and you treasure him, you just you, you, you devote yourself to him. You do what you can. And what are these crowds doing? The crowds who saw him raise Lazarus are speaking about it. They might not have seen him change water into wine a couple years ago. They might not have seen any of the other signs. But the one thing they can talk about is the thing that they saw. I saw this. So... For example, when you see somebody and you might be soul tired or you might be anxious 
because you're not trusting in the Lord. And they say, how, how are you doing today? You can go, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. My life is a mess and I'm doing great. Because of who I am in Christ. Because I don't have to have it figured out. And because I don't have to have it all together. I'm doing great. When we worship Jesus as that true peace bringer. Here in this life. Before he is the conquering king. And just as he is the prince of peace. He is the conquering king. But we get to experience him now. As peace. And we will experience him later as conqueror, but the great thing is we're on the winning side. We get the resurrected body. We get life with the Messiah. We don't get wrath because he did that for us. This is why it's so important for us to make a decision for Jesus now and not even delay it. I always think about my friend, you've heard about him before in high school, where he said, I'm going to get serious about Jesus in college. I'm in high school right now, it doesn't matter that much, but once I get here, or maybe it might be, once I have kids, once I move and I get into a new job in a new town, then I'm going to start getting involved in church life more. I'm going to get and start, start getting engaged with my faith. I'm going to get more serious about it. When these conditions are met, then I'm in. That sounds great. The problem is, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. My encouragement is for us to take the offer that exists to be at peace with the Father now. Not to hit pause and go, well, let me get a few other things in order. Like I said, we're going to spend weeks and months marching to the death of Jesus. And many times you're going to hear me ask you to trust him. To let that death be sufficient for you. And by let, I don't mean magically allow it to appear. It already is sufficient. But to just give up trying. Get out of your own strength. Get out of your own power. Get out of your own authority. Stop worrying about how other people might view it. And trust him. I have a few ways that worshiping Jesus as the peace bringer, as the one who rides in on that colt, the one who is fulfilling, purposefully fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Not accidentally fulfilling it. Not not realizing, but purposefully doing it. I have a few ways. First, when we see Jesus as the one who made us right with the Father, then our worship can be sincere. We've already seen in the crowds, and you'll go through Holy Week, we know not everybody in the crowd believed. Some were just a part of the crowd. They just went along with it because there was a crowd there, and you're following the crowd. And if we all have palm branches, let me get a palm branch and let me participate. It's kind of like the ones who just show up at church because they like it. They're like, I just like to be around people. I like the motivation. It kind of feels good. right? Not, not, because, not because it matters. Not because it's life and death. Not because we need one another. But because it's, it kind of works with my schedule. And, and my friends are here. And it's, it's just kind of convenient. Because once it stops being convenient, 
I'm out. So you get to worship Jesus truly, not insincerely. There are three ways I'm going to say that Jesus, the one riding into town, brings peace as we see in Scripture. I'm going to give you these three ways. The first thing, we've talked about it already in multiple arenas. But peace in your relationship with God the Father. That is the first thing that you get. We start there. The vertical aspect of the peace that we get. The being made right with God. America is an interesting country because it is both highly prosperous and moderately religious. And that is not a common way for prosperous countries to line up. They're generally highly prosperous and moderately secular. And so kind of the religious culture of America, and I'm not even speaking about like Christians, the religious climate of America is different than many other similarly comparable countries. It's interesting. So when we say peace in your relationship with God, I would say most people around us, they might have some kind of religious expectation, but they don't, they're not sitting there going, am I right with God? That's not most people's number one concern. Am I right with God? They're kind of like, are my bills paid? Do people like me? That, that seems to be the, the more the concern that we have. Am I on a good path towards prosperity? The main concern doesn't seem to be, even with the religious culture of America, am I right with God? I would just, I want to challenge everybody here to, to maybe realize that there's more going on in this world than just what you see. There's more going on in this world than just what you experience day to day. And being wrong about God is a pretty serious gamble. Pretty serious. You go, well, you know, I just don't really think too much about that. I think you should think about it. I think you should be serious about going, how do we even know what's right? How do I know if I'm doing well? How do I know if, I'm, if, if, if I am honorable? Do I just need the, the feedback of others to tell me? Or is there some anchor point that I can go to to understand how life is? So I don't just have to poll my friends on Facebook and, and value myself based upon how much they like what I'm saying or not saying. I'm telling you, there are ways, there are true, revealed ways to know who we are and how we're doing. Do we want to see them? Jesus brings peace with our relationship with God the Father through his death, burial, resurrection. He takes the punishment for our sin, and we get life. That's one. Another way Jesus brings peace is he gives us peace in your, our identity, in who we are. This shift is so hard for us to make. Peace with God the Father, and in so doing, we, we gain other things as well. But if I ask you the question, who are you? Who are you? You will likely lead in with, well, I'm a, I'm a mother. I'm a good friend. I'm pretty responsible when I'm awake, after my coffee, all that. I think people like me, right? We start to lead in with what? Behavior. We don't lead in with identity. 
Or maybe role that we had been given at some point in life, right? I wasn't a dad, now I am a dad, I think I'm a decent dad. But we get peace in our identity because the world is going to run after you. If you're here in this room, you're elementary, you're middle school, you're high school, the world is running after you, telling you what kind of person you should be, telling you what matters and what doesn't matter, telling you what's important and what's not important, and telling you what's popular and not popular. And I have to say, like I say it to my, my kids, your friends are idiots, They don't know. They don't know what matters. They don't know what's most important. But we don't know how to process that at 10, 12, 15, 18 years old. We don't know how to handle the fact. We just know fitting in and not fitting in. And we need to hear the voice of the Lord tell us who we are. Remind us that we're forgiven. Remind us that we're loved. Remind us that we are children of God. We need those reminders when we look around and all we just say is, I don't measure up. I don't have that. I'm not that kind of person. So peace in our relationship with the Father, peace in our identity. We need to run to Jesus to have him bring peace to who we are. Not frazzled, not frayed, not frustrated, but confident in him because he has brought it. One of the hardest things to do, but also one of the most freeing, is to be able to go, I'm not defined by what the world thinks of me, but by Jesus, the one riding in on the colt, the one who will soon be mocked, beaten, scarred, and killed. That I'm defined by what he thinks of me. And he rose. His opinion matters more. And then you see this further in Ephesians chapter 2. Peace in our relationships with one another. That through the gospel of Christ, Jesus, that peace bringer, makes us right with one another. There's the vertical, right? Who we are with God. That being made right. That changes our identity. That changes who we are. But then those people together are reconciled together. The Lord brings us peace horizontally with one another as well. People who would have been enemies before are now friends, or at least frenemies. People who once hated one another worship the same God. People who stood on other sides of the aisle no longer do so, because why? Well, you see it in Jesus. Because when he becomes your allegiance, when he becomes your identity, when he becomes your hope, when he becomes the source of your peace, it changes everything else. It becomes the exceeding priority. And even though the disciples in the moment didn't know Zechariah was being fulfilled, didn't understand how the dots were being connected, couldn't see it all, when the Spirit comes, John can go, Jesus was doing more there than we even thought. And he's doing more now, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, than we might even think. He's doing more amongst us even now than we could anticipate. I'm telling you, like there'll be things that you might hear in a sermon or you might hear in a conversation with your friends or here in your community group, and then a year later, it's like, there it is, and you bring it back out, and you're like, I don't even know where that came from. You know, you're sitting next to your spouse, and they're like, I told you that a year ago. Why in the world? Right? Because spouses keep journals of all the things that they said to their spouse they've forgotten. 
the Lord is using these moments and reminding us of what is true. And so as we see Jesus revealed coming into Jerusalem to die, we get to see that he's coming humbly. He's coming in peace right now. And he will come later as the conqueror. And in the in-between, we get the benefits of peace and we get to be made right with God through what he has done.